Community Radio is a proud sponsor of the film screening From Shock to Awe, a journey of hope and transformation on Thursday, January 10th at the Sunnyside Community House in Portland. From Shock to Awe follows the path of two combat veterans from the Iraq War as they live with post-traumatic lack of effective treatment and their search for healing and transformation through plant medicine journeys. Again, that's the film screening From Shock to Awe, a Journey of Hope and Transformation on Thursday, January 10th at 7 p.m. at the Sunnyside Community House, 3520 Southeast Yam Hill Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland. The time now is 9 o'clock. Coming up next on Alternative Radio, Physicians for Social Responsibility talk about the need to eliminate nuclear weapons from the planet. KBOO Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the counter-rally for reproductive justice on Saturday, January 19th from 1 to 4 p.m. at Pioneer Courthouse Square in Portland. On the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, this rally is in support and solidarity with all people who have considered, are considering, or have received abortions. It is a protest of the Rally to the Oregon Right to Life March and will celebrate our victories in imagining a future where every person has access to the reproductive health care they want and deserve. Again, that's the Counter Rally for Reproductive Justice on Saturday, January 19th from 1 to 4 p.m. at Pioneer Courthouse Square on the southwest corner at Morrison and Broadway in Portland. More information can be found at kboot.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. In a lot of ways, the public has kind of gone to sleep on the issue of nuclear weapons. I think that's changed to some extent more recently because we did see, you know, the rising tensions with North Korea and the Trump administration, you know, has these many missteps and more dangerous actions. There is not a lot of awareness of this issue for the average person. And actually for myself, for my generation, I'm 25, you know, when I talk to my friends, this is not an issue that they are concerned about. It's not on their top 10, you know, list of things that they're thinking about. That's Lily Adams. And this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Lily Adams and Bruce Amundsen on preventing nuclear apocalypse. You may know apocalypse as a Marvel Comics supervillain. It is a word of Greek origin, meaning the catastrophic final destruction of the world. The use of nuclear weapons would be apocalyptic. It is difficult to imagine extinction. Understandably, most people would rather not think about it. The term nuclear war is misleading and false. It suggests that one side would come out on top, that there would be a winner and a loser. No way. We'd all be losers. Nevertheless, countries, including the United States, go on building new nuclear weapons that are called smarter and packing more of a wallop. It's a worldview Dr. Strangelove would have appreciated. In the interests of sanity and self-preservation, the nuclear weapons states must move toward eliminating these weapons of mass destruction. 
that if used accidentally or deliberately will destroy our precious planet. Our guests today are Lily Adams and Bruce Amundsen. Lily Adams is the coordinator of Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility's Nuclear Arms Abolition Campaign. She has worked as a community organizer with various civil society groups. Bruce Amundsen is a former president of and longtime member of Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. He has taught at the University of Washington Medical School. I talked with them in Seattle. Welcome to the program, Lily Adams. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And welcome to you, too, Bruce uh, Abmanson. Thank you. Well, it's been more than seven decades since the first use of nuclear weapons by the United States on uh, Japanese cities, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Since those events of 1945, what has changed in terms of proliferation of nuclear weapons? Since 1945, we obviously saw the massive buildup during the Cold War of nuclear weapons and a huge and incredibly expensive nuclear arms race, especially between the U.S. and Russia. Um, But then, of course, since then, uh, many other countries have also gotten nuclear weapons. So now, today, nine countries have nuclear weapons, and that's the U.S., Russia, China, the U.K., France, India, Pakistan, Israel, and now North Korea. What really troubles us looking at this today is we had that big buildup of nuclear weapons, but then we saw a real dramatic decrease after the end of the Cold War in which, you know, we decided we have to have an end to these nuclear weapons. We have to work towards disarmament and eventually the elimination of nuclear weapons. But then we kind of went to sleep. And since the end of the Cold War, uh, I think the issue kind of dropped off our radars uh, politically and with the public. And so we're concerned today that what we see in our government is still kind of a persistence of Cold War era policies um, around nuclear weapons and a really strong commitment still to having them despite a very different you know, global and political situation today. And so you know, I think that is something that we have really worked to challenge on this issue. And many people don't realize that at the peak there were like 70,000 nuclear weapons in the world. And then those decreased through arms control uh, negotiations down to about 14,000. So we've shown that something useful can happen when reasonable people get together and negotiate. Yeah, we today, the world has, um, as we said, about 14,000 nuclear weapons. 93% of those, though, are held by the U.S. and Russia. Um, The U.S. on its own has roughly 6,500, a little under, uh, nuclear warheads. Bruce and I are in Washington state, and roughly 1,200 of those are right here in our home state. Now, Bruce, there's a culture of secrecy that persists around the topic of uh, nuclear weapons, a kind of legacy of the Cold War that we really haven't shed. Can you talk about that? Nuclear weapons policies have been absolutely deep-sexed from the standpoint of national security since the beginning. While we know basic numbers, the extent to which policies have remained secret, the extent to which targeting has been secret, the extent to which certain policies have existed that we have never acknowledged, like uh, the willingness to use nuclear weapons first, uh, it's been unlike any other part of our uh, our foreign policy history, uh, nuclear weapons have been have been governed by a, a really disastrous 
culture of secrecy up until today. And why is that? Well, under the guise of national security, what do we do whenever we think there's something that, that uh, is threatening to us? Uh, the go governments tend to pull the covers of, of secrecy over it. And because, because the use of these weapons has such massive implications, the, the less the public knows, the less they have to justify them. And in terms of the destructive capacity of these weapons, if they are ever used. Noam Chomsky has said it's a miracle uh, with all the close calls that we've had that there hasn't been uh, a general catastrophe involving these, these weapons of mass destruction. Much of the time, the, the public dialogue and the political dialogue goes on as if, if these weapons were just an extension of conventional weapons, and they're not. I think it's useful to sort of walk through what happens with a nuclear blast. I mean, most people have seen pictures of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But if we consider the impact of an 800 kiloton weapon, which is about 40 times the size of the weapon on Hiroshima, which is a pretty typical size of many of today's weapons, expl exploded over a U.S. city. Here's what happens. First, the blast generates forces of 100 pounds per square inch, so all buildings within a diameter of a mile are flattened. And everything that's loose becomes projectiles, uh, flying debris through the air. Uh, but all houses within a diameter of seven to eight miles, are uh, frame houses, are destroyed. Uh, then comes a firestorm with surface temperatures of 16,000 degrees, or two and a half times the surface of the sun, exposing everybody within 15 miles of third-degree burns. And anybody exposed with third-degree burns would die uh, if they survived the firestorm. About two minutes after detonation, the upward sweep of vertical afterwinds from the, from the heat uh, brings counterwinds of 250 to 300 miles an hour, sweeping vertically, uh, carrying massive amounts of soot and, uh, and debris and, and, and carbon in the air. And then the third effect is from the radiation, uh, with huge amounts of radiation, especially gamma rays, uh, exposing everybody in, the, in that typ typical zone of 150 square miles or so to lethal doses of radiation, acute radiation sickness, people typically die within days or weeks uh, in addition to chronic exposure. Uh, there is no response to such an explosion in an urban area. We saw after, in the aftermath of um, Hiroshima, which was a much smaller bomb that was used there, um, anywhere between 80 and 90 percent of uh, doctors and nurses had died in the blast, and also um, between 80 and 90 percent of medical institutions were destroyed. So, you know, we're talking about these catastrophic consequences and absolutely no infrastructure or help available to deal with them. It is, you know, absolutely um, tragedy that, you know, I think we cannot even imagine today. What does the term nuclear winter mean? There's been really good modeling now, and as I uh, suggested, in the wake of, of a, a blast like this, there's millions of tons of certain carbon that are injected high into the atmosphere. So the modeling was done with a limit, quote, so-called limited nuclear exchange. For example, India and Pakistan, uh, if they used as few as 100 nuclear weapons uh, in Asia with the, uh, the smoke and the fires, the carbon in the atmosphere is projected to drop atmospheric temperatures across the entire northern hemisphere. 
which would have an impact on food production. Uh, serious reductions of rice and winter wheat in China, of corn and wheat in the U.S., dropping to levels that would impact food production and project uh, at least 2 billion people at risk of starvation. And this would last, even with 100 weapons, as projected for 10 years. And if there were a major nuclear war with the kind of weapons that are in the arsenals, it's projected it would drop temperatures to nothing seen since the Ice Age, which would be incompatible with life on the planet. It's mutually assured suicide is what, what the reality would be. Yeah, it's very important as we think about policy today, you know, to remember what many uh, political leaders and, you know, leaders in the military have absolutely understood, which is there, yeah, there are no winners in a nuclear war. There's no such thing as a limited nuclear war, even though that phrase still gets thrown around today as well. But yeah, we know that there are no survivors. This is not something to contemplate. Now, in terms of the international community, uh, has the UN been a forum where there has been a concrete discussion of, of nuclear weapons and moving toward uh, some form of disarmament? There have been many different treaties through the UN that have worked to uh, reduce nuclear weapons and limit the risks of nuclear war. Um, one of the biggest landmark treaties is the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which entered into force in 1970. That's maybe the one that most people would be familiar with. And that uh, actually 191 states around the world have signed on to that treaty. And that really was, the, it was um, the first treaty to really move these countries who had nuclear weapons to pursue in good faith, is what they say, pursue in good faith disarmament of nuclear weapons. That's um, Article 6 of yes. the treaty. Many would say today that the U.S. is not pursuing in good faith the, their disarmament, um, but you know that is something that we are, we are still party to this treaty. And then there have been many others. One that's been talked about a lot today is the um, Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty or the INF Treaty. Bruce, maybe you have a lot of the particular history on that. Well, and that really wasn't a U.N. treaty. It mm -hmm. was a bilateral treaty right. between the U.S. and Russia. Yeah. But the other major treaty through the U.N. was the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, mm -hmm. which came in the wake of nuclear testing. And then uh, we can perhaps talk a little bit later about what happened most recently, uh, which is the passage of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was a major initiative by the U.N., pushed by civil society groups, particularly an organization called ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And the breakthrough of that more than a year and a half ago was the passage of a treaty, the treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons, passed by 122 nations, uh, not signed by any of the nuclear nations. But the remarkable thing about that treaty is that it declares it is illegal to test, produce, develop, possess, transfer, or even threaten the use of nuclear weapons to all signatories. The treaty is now being ratified. Uh, once uh, 50 nations around the world actually, through their parliaments and congresses, sign it, it becomes ratified. And so far, 19 nations have ratified it, which is uh, judged to be fairly good progress for a treaty of this complexity. And once that occurs, it will place nuclear weapons in the same category of all the other weapons of mass destruction which have been declared illegal under international law. 
chemical weapons, biological weapons, and landmines. So it will severely stigmatize nations that continue to own nuclear weapons, possess nuclear weapons, and the pressure is then on them in a way that we haven't seen before. The two-thirds of the world's nations have stated that we need to completely eliminate nuclear weapons, which is a monumental step that has never happened before. Well, one treaty that's uh, now being discussed because the uh, Trump regime has announced it's withdrawing from the uh, Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces uh, Treaty. Uh, this alarmed uh, a lot of people, including uh, Mikhail Gorbachev and uh, former Secretary of State George Shultz in an article in the Washington Post uh, it was called Abandoning U.S.-Russia Nuclear Treaty Threatens Our Very Existence. So this is a treaty that came about in 1987, and it specifically prohibits ground-launched ballistic and cruise missiles within the range of 500 to 5,000 kilometers. And this was a really important treaty you know, towards the end of the Cold War uh, between the U.S. and, at that time, the Soviet Union um, that de-escalated the Cold War at a really crucial time um, and really set these countries up for a path towards disarmament. Um, and to simply think about throwing that away today is an incredibly dangerous and destabilizing move. Um, these kinds of treaties are what keep us, you know, back from the brink of nuclear war. They are what keep the peace um, and allow both countries to move towards disarmament um, and to keep the prospect, as we were saying, of nuclear war off the table. Um, if we were to start, well, if we were to withdraw, this could potentially start an entirely new nuclear arms race. This is absolutely moving us in the opposite direction that we need to be going in uh, with the U.S. and Russia. And I think what's concerning as well is that it potentially indicates that this administration is thinking of abandoning another crucial treaty, which is the New START Treaty, also between the U.S. and Russia, that required both countries to disarm two uh, 1,550 nuclear warheads. If we abandon that, we've now lost all of the major nuclear treaties that control arms in the U.S. and Russia. The position of the regime in Washington is that Russia is not in compliance with the uh, INF uh, treaty. What's the evidence of, for that? Well, there, there apparently is good evidence that uh, Russia has been developing a new uh, category of short-range missiles, um, and that's uh, been acknowledged also by members of NATO and the European Union. Uh, Russia denies it, but that's not too surprising. The critical thing about this treaty is that these were the most dangerous weapons during the Cold War because these short-range missiles were, were parked just across the border between the Soviet bloc and the, and the European bloc with ability to strike major cities in either on either side in just minutes. And so there was no way of... Of, of stopping something once it happened. It was so frightening to the Europeans that it led to the m most massive civil demonstrations against nuclear weapons in Europe and the U.S. that have ever occurred. Millions of people marched in the streets of European cities because of the terror of these weapons being cited. It was that that led to Gorbachev and Reagan signing, as Lily said, this treaty in 1987 that removed about 900 missiles from uh, the U.S. side and I think about 17 or 1,800 from the USSR and basically took that flashpoint away. If that 
is abrogated. If the U.S. walks away from that and we begin to, again, place short-range missiles Mm -hmm. in places like Russia, China is developing short-range missiles. Other nations have been a, haven't been a part of the treaty. Uh, it will be a massive step backward. And so what's being called for is not to walk away from the treaty, but to call for call Russia out and to sit down and negotiate and try to deal with this through diplomacy. That's the really serious misstep that the Trump administration is taking and has uh, our allies our European allies absolutely up in arms for uh, valid reasons. I'd also add that the uh, part of the significance of the IMF treaty is that it led them to uh, the START treaty with Russia, which was a major treaty to reduce nuclear weapons. So it was it sort of laid the foundation for a culture of diplomacy between the U.S. and the USSR at the height of the Cold War. So the concern is that it begins to uh, shake the very foundations of, inter- of international diplomacy, which have been what has led to the controls that we've had, the reductions that we've had over the years. So it's clear that Bolton and President Trump are not acknowledging at all the really severe implications of what they're doing, nor what I expect is the president really even aware of that foundation, given that he is so disengaged from this issue. Adam Smith, who represents uh, Washington State in in the Congress, uh, says that, I'm quoting here, we are stumbling into a dangerous arms race with Russia. Congressman Adam Smith has been a really strong advocate for more sane nuclear policy, and this is one of the places that he's really stepped out, um, along with some of his other colleagues. Um, He sent a letter to the Trump administration urging them to reverse this course to yeah, go back right. to the uh, NPT, the Non-Proliferation yeah. uh, Treaty, three major countries that have weapons of mass destruction, that have uh, nukes, plus the ballistic missiles to deliver them, mm-hmm. uh, India, Pakistan, and Israel, more or less U.S. allies, very close U.S. allies, in, in particularly in terms of India and uh, Israel. Uh, why haven't they... Uh, been uh, cajoled or coerced into signing the treaty. I mean, they're kind of rogue states. Mm-hmm. A couple of things come to mind, David. One is it's been hard to cajole Israel into it because Israel continues to deny it has the weapons. So their formal policy is never to acknowledge themselves as a nuclear nation, which is part of the charade that we're in. Uh, India sort of got off scot-free by the U.S., when we provided them nuclear material and didn't require them to sign on to the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty. Pakistan has been sort of a rogue state all along in terms of uh, dealing with their responsibilities as a nuclear nation. So um, I'm, I'm guessing that U.S. pressure or international pressure has not really been applied to the extent that it might have been. I think also what we see with this and what we're seeing in North Korea as well is that nuclear weapons are still absolutely seen as a status symbol for countries. The treaties that we have thus far and the the disarmament that we have undertaken so far in the U.S. has not been enough to to make nuclear weapons lose their status as a way to show your power as a country. That's why I think the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons just passed in 2017 is so important because it works to change that norm. 
you know, we know that nuclear weapons are inhumane and they have no place in our society, but many countries still don't see them that way. And we need to change that norm so that they are viewed as the despicable weapons that they are, not as a status symbol. Uh, let's talk about the Iran deal, which was unilaterally abrogated uh, by the president in May of uh, 2018. This was an agreement, not a treaty, mm -hmm. uh, in which the five permanent members of the Security Council and Germany engaged in with Iran so that they would not proceed with what was called the development of uh, centrifuges which could possibly be used for uh, weaponizing purposes. Why do you think the Trump administration pulled out of that deal, which seemed to have been working? And according to the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency in Vienna, the UN agency which sent teams to Iran, uh, they were in full compliance with the requirements of the deal. So it seems from a layperson's perspective, the deal was working. Right. I mean, who can say why the Trump administ administration does what they do exactly? I mean, I think we heard about this uh, in Trump's campaigning before he even became president, that this was the worst deal in history. And I think in some ways it has become as much about proving the Obama administration wrong um, than anything else for this president. Um, and that's a various, very dangerous way to go into foreign policy. Um, but I think that's certainly a factor. This was a a really important accomplishment. It was an immensely complex treaty. And um, the diplomacy that went into this on the part of the Obama administration was just exemplary. And pulling these six nations together to do it was an amazing accomplishment. And it has stopped Iran from becoming a nuclear power. And uh, you're right, David, that all indications are from the uh, really credible IEA that they are compliant with this. In addition, the Trump administration has not heaped on sanctions to further uh, cripple uh, their economy. And I think uh, part of the explanation is that uh, they have tried to hold the treaty accountable for something it was never meant to do. It's yeah. been criticized because they didn't deal with other aspects of Iran's behavior that people are upset about. They're alleged support of terrorism and so forth. But, but that, was an, that was outside the boundaries of what was accomplishable. And so the, the, the focus was on nuclear weapons, and it wasn't meant to deal with every other area of agreement between the two nations. So um, along come people who are not part of this, and particularly Trump, who makes simply a proclamation without any real knowledge of the complexity of what it was meant to do, and calling it you know, calling it uh, the worst ever, which is just part of his, his ignorance about this complex diplomacy. But uh, other members of his administration, Bolton and others, uh, criticizing it for what it never meant to do, which was dealing with other aspects of Iran's behavior on the international stage. So I think we see that all as just an excuse to uh, pull out of the treaty, uh, to uh, destroy, as Lily said, something that the Obama president has done, which seems to be part of his intent, and to begin to jeopardize one of the most important non-proliferation treaties that we've seen in the last 30 years. It's a really, it's a catastrophic step on their part, and it's an embarrassment for the world because we have virtually never seen nations pull out of major international treaties like this. There's not even a precedent for it. That, that's how uh, disruptive it is. 
Well, politically speaking, uh, and that's why perhaps uh, the Obama administration crafted it as an accord Mm -hmm. rather than a treaty, because that occludes Mm -hmm. any uh, congressional intervention in the Mm -hmm. drafting of a treaty, which requires two-thirds majority vote in the Senate. And now we pay the price of that, that the president can again act unilaterally without having to go back to Congress. So in a sense, we're hoisted on that petard, but it never would have passed Congress, so we can understand uh, why they proceeded the way that they did. Now, you've mentioned uh, Obama, and you've commented that he talked a good game. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do you mean by that, he talked a good game? Right. Well, I think, you know, Obama was very famous for saying in 2009 that we should work towards a world without nuclear weapons. And that's a bold statement for a president to make and an important one to make, I think. You know, obviously that was not achieved during his presidency. No one would have expected that. But I think we were disappointed in the amount of progress that went towards that goal. I still think it is important for a president to stand up and say those words and to have that goal that, you know, we've moved very far backwards from that point in this administration now with this president. As Bruce said, the Obama administration created the Iran deal, and that is a huge feat of diplomacy. So we can't give Obama no credit. For those of us who work in disarmament, we would have loved to see more. We would have loved to see a no first use uh, policy, or we would have liked to see further steps in disarmament. There were pretty modest reductions in the nuclear arsenal under the Obama administration. And then, of course, the Obama administration signed with Russia the New START Treaty, which required both countries to eliminate a certain number of um, certain number of nuclear weapons, uh, which is a good step forward. But uh, as kind of a compromise in creating that treaty, um, they also agreed, but that both countries could quote unquote modernize their nuclear arsenals. Um, that has really set the U.S. up for a massive spending spree on nuclear weapons to not really just modernize, but actually to rebuild every single part of our nuclear weapons system. Um, That is set to cost us at least $1.2 trillion over the next 30 years in uh, 2017 dollars. Um, So, you know, the Obama administration had some very great statements and some good progress where it was needed, but also um, set us up for this rebuild that we're seeing now that, you know, could definitely be seen as a new arms race in and of itself. You're listening to Lily Adams and Bruce Amundsen on Preventing Nuclear Apocalypse. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So if you were to talk to the average uh, you know, U.S. person and you're advocating for uh, demilitarization and disarmament, uh, could some of this money possibly better their lives and, and improve society? That, that goes for... Uh, much of our military budget now takes up over 50% of the U.S. federal budget. So the argument about what we could better do to deal with a decaying infrastructure, a massively underfunded civil society, uh, is uh, is clear. But I want to go back for a minute to uh, the Obama administration. Um, when Obama declared in Vienna that the world should move towards the elimination of nuclear weapons and committed the U.S. to do that, uh, it was, at, at the time, 
uh, a really commendable and bold statement. No American president had ever before declared as policy that it should move towards the elimination of nuclear weapons. And there's very little stomach for that even now in the U.S., even in Congress, even as the U.N. has passed a treaty that commits to move towards that. But Obama ran into all leaders run into in the U.S. if they try to move too much towards reducing nuclear weapons. Late in his second term, there was significant initiative by Obama and his national security staff to declare for the first time that the U.S. would initiate a no-first-use policy, that absolutely would declare they would never be the first to use nuclear weapons in any conflict. You would think that that would be an easy lift. He wasn't able to accomplish that. Uh, We were uh, on a panel with his deputy national security advisor, had that discussion. What happened internally? Um, He was stifled in his ability to do that. And I would say that he ran in to what uh, Colonel Lee Butler, previous uh, director of of, uh, the nuclear weapons program in the 1990s, called the nuclear priesthood. The forces of opposition to us weaning ourselves off nuclear weapons to reducing high-risk policies has been, the opposition is immense. And in this case, it turned out that someone we might have thought uh, would be an ally for this, the current Secretary of State at the time, uh, John Kerry, opposed Obama taking this position under some guise of destabilizing relations with other partners like South Korea or Japan. So the nuclear priesthood, which consists of uh, true believers in terms of members of Congress, the um, defense contractors, the Pentagon, the inertia the, to to deal with significant policy changes on nuclear weapons is massive. That's an example of what we face as we move forward, even when a president was taking what we might think is a rather modest initiative. Talk about the danger that Dwight D. Eisenhower discussed on his way out of the White House in 1961 in his farewell address. He identified a military-industrial complex now, you're here in this state of Washington where there's a massive military uh, presence. There's a, a bad joke that goes around. If Washington were an independent state, uh, it would be the third most powerful nuclear force in, in the world. What factor does this military-industrial complex, and I'm talking about Boeing, I'm talking about Lockheed Martin, I'm talking about Raytheon and uh, Northrop Grumman and all of these other huge uh, mega corporations that make enormous amounts of money from war and the war economy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first I would say it's not a bad joke. It's absolutely true um, that if Washington were to be its own country, it would be the third largest nuclear weapons country in the world. For us here in Washington state, that's terrifying. That makes us a target. Um, and we know that working on this issue. Um, but I think you bring up a very good point that our nuclear weapons policy Um, is underlined by these massive corporations who stand to make quite a bit of profit from the continued reliance on nuclear weapons um, and who spend a lot of money lobbying our members of Congress to keep pushing for policies and, you know, bigger and bigger budgets um, that include nuclear weapons production. 
Um, so it's very hard to make progress on disarmament and on better nuclear policy more generally when you have that kind of massive pressure. And all these companies and all of the different nuclear sites are spread out very strategically across the country in many different states so that there are many members of Congress who are directly influenced in getting that direct pressure um, from different corporations. Five of the largest uh, military contractors that include Lockheed Martin, uh, Northrop Grumman, uh, Boeing, um, I saw statistics recently comprise about 40 percent the total contracting that, that is carried out by the federal government for uh, on the military budget. Um, Boeing is somewhat invisible in that regard in Washington because, of course, its production here and its main focus is the domestic airline industry, which is a big employer. But it, last year, uh, obtained the contract to develop the new generation of ICBMs if the whole modernization goes forward. So Boeing is hip-deep in the uh, weapons production. It has had a contract for a long time to manage the ICBM, the 400 ICBMs that are stationed out in the Great Plains. And now it's, it's going to be in the ring again for this next generation of ICBMs, which are, I think, widely recognized as the most vulnerable, the most destabilizing, the least defensible of the triad of bombers, missiles, and nuclear submarines. So, let's play this out for a minute, David. Uh, in, let's say, in another couple of years, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons becomes international law. And these weapons are, are stigmatized. If, if countries now use chemical weapons, there's a, there's a huge outrage. Look what happened in Syria some months ago when, when these were used. Once they are outlawed, there's a public outrage that they're used on civilian populations. What will happen to nuclear weapon states? What will happen to companies that are producing nuclear weapons that are now deemed weapons of mass destruction, illegal under international law? We plan to put the spotlight on Boeing. Does our home corporation want to be involved in producing weapons of mass destruction that the majority of nations in the world have said are no longer defensible? We wait for that treaty to be passed and we plan to then ask Boeing if it wants to continue to be a partner in producing weapons of mass destruction. In 2018, North Korea and Kim Jong-un uh, were the focus of much attention. There were multiple tests, nuclear tests, uh, the launching of uh, ballistic missiles. Trump has taken great credit for defusing uh, the so-called threat from uh, North Korea. What exactly is going on there in your understanding? Well, I think that we have to give credit where credit is due. Um, a year, a year and a half ago, when Trump was bombastically threatening to use nuclear weapons, when we have bigger nuclear weapons than we do, this completely irresponsible, ignorant sort of proclamations, it was terrifying for us, terrifying for everybody. It was terrifying for Washington. We're the closest state to North Korea. If he had uh, ICBMs that could reach the U.S. So we were very active at that time trying to get our members of Congress to call him out. So the fact that he then backed off and these two leaders engaged in negotiations are engaged in negotiations I think we all need to acknowledge is, is a much more positive step than calling each other out. Now the problem is that the Trump administration's diplomacy is so sophomoric and so primitive and so ill-guided 
that the likelihood of this resulting in denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula under this regime, I think many of us feel is quite unlikely. But nevertheless, negotiations go on, so that has diffused things considerably, and we don't have at least the kind of saber-riding going on that was really terrifying all of us uh, a year, year and a half ago. I think also we have to give credit to the leadership in South Korea and Moon Jae-in for the huge role um, that was played there and, you know, what has happened. I think the negotiations that we saw between Trump and Kim Jong-un would not have happened without the leadership in South Korea. Um, I think what we're seeing now is, you know, Trump does like to say that, you know, he has completely diffused this threat and made the world a safer place and is, you know, he you know, has said that he's in love with Kim Jong-un now. <laughs> uh, what a statement to make. Um, but what we've seen in reality is that North Korea is continuing their nuclear program. And that seems to be, you know, from sources that we've seen and from evidence that is still going on, they've made some small concessions um, that are probably even smaller um, than we would think. There's still so much more work to be done, and uh, it needs to be done in a much more sophisticated way than it was in 2018 when we saw these threats over Twitter being lobbed at each other, these absolutely immature kind of statements about each other. We need to have much more sophisticated diplomacy to actually see results in the denuclearization of North Korea. And it seems like uh, the door is open enough that some obvious steps could be taken to meet the the interests of North Korea. For example, the U.S. agreeing to sign the peace treaty to finally put an end to the Korean War. Wouldn't that seem to be a fairly easy diplomatic effort? Secondly, uh, should we really be continuing to engage in provocative military exercises with South Korea when that simply uh, raises concerns and suspicions on North Korea? There are common sense things that can be taken that would help in this ongoing effort, particularly, as Zoe said, by South Korea, and it's very enlightened leadership right now to try to bring peace to that peninsula. And what about the role of uh, China and Japan? Would it not be in their national interest to defuse uh, this situation? Well, wouldn't we think so? Um, there's, there's great debate about China, whether they want a, a stronger South Korea, uh, given their interests. Um, they're concerned about North Korea and massive migrations across into China. But nevertheless, diplomacy in that area obviously has to involve both Koreas, the U.S., China, and Japan. I think everyone involved in a diplomatic relationship recognizes that. You know, mention was made of the, of the word inertia. And a lot of us experience inertia, but around this particular issue, uh, it's, it has fossilized into something very solid. So how do you break down uh, that inertia? How do you get people to open their ears and open their eyes to the obvious danger that nuclear weapons present, not to just them, but to humanity and the planet? It really is one of the most important questions of our time. Since the beginning of the Cold War, we've had really a single set of nuclear policies. They've been, um, Democrats and Republicans alike, have supported basically a set of Cold War policies that rely on the concept of deterrence, of massive arsenals, of willing to threaten to use, of maintaining the weapons on hair-trigger alert, continuing to fund them, 
now looking at funding a new generation of weapons across all of the of the triad. It's been a closed culture. It's this it's this nuclear priesthood that I mentioned before that's almost impossible to penetrate from the outside. Now we see some hope. I'll mention one thing uh, first and then talk about what gives us some reason for hope. With the Democrats taking over the House, uh, Representative Adam Smith of Washington uh, is going to become the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. And that committee, responsible for overall military policy, setting budgets and so forth, is a very powerful committee. Uh, Representative Smith has been very outspoken about challenging existing nuclear weapons policy, about critical of the lack of diplomacy, maintaining that the level of funding for nuclear weapons that is projected for the rebuild of the complex is not sustainable. And he is committed in a way that we have not seen for a chairman of this committee for over 30 years to take up the issue of nuclear weapons in a way that we simply haven't done. For example, the commitment to rebuild this triad at the massive cost that you mentioned earlier uh, was made. There had never been a full public congressional hearing on this issue, even as the commitment was made to, made to move ahead with basically reestablishing a set of weapons that will be in place for the next 30 or 40 years. That's how, that's unexamined that's been publicly. So we are uh, wanting to support what Representative Smith is doing, and we're calling out citizens across the country to contact their members of Congress to say, get behind this. He can't be too far out in front because we can predict that the industrial complex, the military, is going to come down on him like a ton of bricks once he tries to move this ahead. So this gives a very tangible, specific thing that people across the country can do. We can talk specifically about how they contact members of Congress, but mobilizing other members of Congress now that he's giving some cover for this in a way that we haven't seen before is a very, very important step forward that gives us some chink in the armor of the this culture of secrecy and control that has existed around nuclear policies. You know, we work with a lot of our members of Congress here in Washington State, but I think this is true for members all over the country. They tell us again and again when we meet with them, you know, we want to hear from our constituents more on this issue. They do respond to the things they hear about from constituents, and they're just not hearing about nuclear weapons issues. You know, that hasn't been a big reason for people to call into their offices or email their representatives and senators. So it often feels like you're shouting into the void, but actually contacting your members of Congress on nuclear policy can have a really big effect because they don't hear about it as much. If just a few emails and calls can really um, spike their interest, um, and that can have a really huge impact. So it's a you know I think the good news is that there is a way to you know for your average person to actually have a really big role in, in forming better nuclear policy. Everybody that's listening has a member of Congress as a representative, start with a representative. If you know that person, if you've had contact, if you've donated, ask for an appointment. Anybody can ask for an appointment with a member of Congress. And if you get a number of you that are constituents, you very likely will get a meeting and come with a specific request. If that seems intimidating, outlandish, make a phone call or send an email and say, this is what I'd like you to do. If we can get 50, 100 members of the House to begin to step up on this, the House alone can't change these policies, but it can significantly limit funding. It can begin to stop 
new uh, nuclear weapons additions. So there are now things that can be done, very tangible things that can be done if this door is being opened by some leadership in Congress that we haven't seen before. But a lot of people might find it difficult to travel to Washington, D.C. to have an audience with their representative. Could they do that locally? Absolutely. I think it's often even more effective to meet in district and to bring constituents with you. I think that's one of the most important things is um, members of Congress want to see that their voters, you know, are the ones who care about this. So going to a meeting with other people, you know, in your area who are all voting for this member of Congress and saying, you know, I care about this issue. That's that's I think in some ways much more powerful than a lobbyist in Washington D.C. or a representative, you know, from an organization in D.C. having that meeting. You find out when they're not in session, when they're back in the district, and we have to plan ahead. But they come back into the district and they have they schedule time with meetings with their constituents. So you just get on the roster and ask uh, ask for an opportunity. PSR Physicians for Social Responsibility. PSR advocates the grassroots tactic of passing local resolutions. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think that's very important that you are pairing any work with members of Congress with that pressure from the grassroots, you know, from your average people. You can't have a successful movement without both. We've really taken that to heart. So a big way to make this issue more local for people uh, is to do local resolutions Um, And we've seen a whole variety of what that can look like um, from resolutions that focus on specific nuclear policies like um, a no first use policy, as Bruce was talking about, um, to a movement called Back from the Brink that was really initiated by PSR that takes a look more broadly at all of our nuclear policies and specifically also calls for the elimination of nuclear weapons. But this has been a hugely successful way to engage people more locally because nuclear weapons can feel like a very distant issue. It can feel very complex, and it happens only in the halls of Congress. And this really brings it home, and you can have your city or your county or your state you know, stand up against these policies that we see as wrong. And that's been very powerful. So we've passed a couple in cities in Washington state. Uh, We're working on a state-level resolution for 2019, but we've seen these pass all over the country. And actually, California just was the first state. They actually passed two different resolutions in their state legislature opposing current nuclear weapons policies and calling for better policies in Congress. It's been a powerful tool. We were meeting with a uh, member of the House of Representatives serving the Olympia District, uh, just shortly after the city of Olympia passed a resolution uh, opposing nuclear weapons and calling for their elimination. And so we then took this issue. So your constituents, you know, your, your city government just passed this. So it, it, it connects advocacy with requesting policy change. And our belief is that every kind of advocacy, be it social protests, be it marches, be it letters to the editor, ought to be tied to impacting members of Congress around policy. So that linkage is what is really the emphasis that we've had here, linking advocacy to policy change. What role do you see the media playing? Part of the problem, as we talked about at the very beginning, was that in a lot of ways the public has kind of gone to sleep on the issue of nuclear weapons. I think that's changed to some extent more recently because we did see, you know, the rising tensions with North Korea 
and the Trump administration, you know, has these many missteps and more dangerous actions. There is not a lot of awareness of this issue for the average person. And actually for myself, for my generation, I'm 25. You know, when I talk to my friends about this issue, this is not an issue that they are concerned about. It's not on their top 10, you know, list of things that they're thinking about. So we definitely need more media coverage of this very important issue. And media coverage that is not just covering the kind of wonky politics, but also just educational and telling people about the issues like we were just talking about that are affecting them and their communities as they relate to nuclear weapons. Your average person has a role to play in the media coverage around this issue because anyone can submit a letter to the editor or an op-ed. This can be really powerful, especially in local papers, to start a dialogue in your own community about nuclear weapons issues. You can be the one to get it started um, by submitting a letter to the editor, and that's a really powerful tool that I think people sometimes forget about. The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists in 1947 uh, set up something called the Doomsday Clock, and in 2018, uh, the clock was at uh, two minutes to midnight. Uh, Why do you think the danger is so sharp right now? The doomsday clock is a relative judgment about the risks to the human community from particularly nuclear war, but also factoring in implications now of a warming planet creating more international instability, migrations, creating more tensions for war. And what it is reflecting is that we are at greater risk of nuclear war than we were during much of the Cold War. That's a very sobering assessment. There is no negotiations, no diplomacy going on around nuclear weapons. We have new armed states coming on, like North Korea. We have uh, bombastic leaders in high-risk situations like Pakistan and India. So we have a combination of circumstances that lead to a greater threat of either the accidental or the intentional use of nuclear weapons than we've seen. And that moved the doomsday clock from three minutes to two minutes. And I would say that there are two issues that really pose the greatest risks from the standpoint of nuclear policies on the U.S. side. The first is that we have never declared that we will not use nuclear weapons first. Secondly, nuclear weapons in both the U.S. and Russia continue to be on hair-trigger alert, on what we call launch-on-command, which means if there is an imminent threat, these weapons can be launched with no further review. This is the great risk because that means that they can be launched if there's an accident. And there have been multiple examples when we came perilously close to nuclear war from erroneous radar or electronic mishaps in the command system. So these weapons should be taken off, launch on command, so that there is time to review what's happening in case there's a decision to launch nuclear weapons. And that's particularly the case for the ICBMs, which are the most, uh, the most risky weapons we have. So keep those two requests in mind and contact members of Congress and deal with the most substantial risks. Um, Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that assessment. It's important for people thinking about this issue today to remember that there is hope. I think we're coming into 2019 with hope about the prospects for creating better nuclear policy and optimism, even if it's cautious optimism. Congressman Adam Smith, now the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, 
and the House and now, you know, flipping to be controlled by the Democrats. We've also seen some really prominent people in Congress speak up about this issue. Elizabeth Warren recently gave a foreign policy speech in which she outlined really bold stances on nuclear weapons and the need for reductions in nuclear weapons. So having these really key players come out against these is really important. Um, But I think what we were talking about before, too, of the really important role of your average person, your average activist in this issue is another reason for optimism. From our work in Washington State, where we have paired this um, really specific advocacy with members of Congress, with the building of a grassroots movement, we have been so excited to see that work. (laughs) And uh, we're seeing the changes in policy already with our members of Congress from people who had said, you know, this was not an issue that they felt that they needed to work on. This was not something they cared about to now standing up and taking bold stances on nuclear policy. We've shown that citizen activism and advocacy on these issues can really make a big difference. And so that is something to not forget. You know, this can be a very distressing issue to think about and learn about. But we're seeing progress happening right now from the work we're doing. And so there's good reason to feel confident that your advocacy can make a difference. In a relatively short period of time. In one to two years, we've seen most members of our delegation step up on the issue in ways that in the ways that they had not before. I'm reminded of what uh, the great abolitionist and revolutionary Frederick Douglass uh, once said: that if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Power concedes nothing without a demand. That's uh, absolutely the truth. Well, I want to thank uh, you, Bruce Abnison and Lily Adams, for uh, joining us on Alternative Radio. Thank you. Thank you. You were just listening to Lily Adams and Bruce Amundsen on Preventing Nuclear Apocalypse. I talked with them in Seattle. Lily Adams and Bruce Amundsen are both active with WPSR, Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit organization Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the media, such as Stephen Bezruchka, Arjun Singh Sethi, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, Francis Fox Piven, and Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Lily Adams and Bruce Amundsen on Preventing Nuclear Apocalypse, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. This program was recorded at the Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle. Special thanks to Jim Sawyer. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.
Kebu Community Radio holds an open meeting concerning the operations and programming of Kebu in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about Kebu Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be conducted at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, unless otherwise noted. The Program Advisory Committee meets the second Tuesday of each month at 6 p.m. Please call 503-231-8032 to verify if a meeting is being held. KBU at the Clinton is a monthly film series that benefits your community radio station. This month, we'll screen Don't Look Back on Thursday, January 10th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater. Don't Look Back is a documentary film following Bob Dylan during a three-week concert tour of England in the spring of 1965. The film chronicles Dylan's concert appearances, hotel room conversations, and downtime, pulling back the curtain on Dylan on the cusp of his creative shift towards rock music. Again, that's Don't Look Back on Thursday, January 10th at 7 p.m. at the Clinton Street Theater, 2522 Southeast Clinton Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Good morning. You are listening to KBOO Portland, and it is 10 o'clock top of the hour at 11 stage and studio presents the documentary ing doc hey frontier herbalist about the roots of a thriving eastern oregon chinatown and 11:30 art focus talks to photographer jason savage about his project stripping out loud a series of 69 photos of portland area exotic dancers all of these kboo programs are made possible by member support if you'd like to become a member Go to kboo.fm and click on Donate. And now at 10, it's Flashpoints with Dennis Bernstein. KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO listener members and support from Gazelle by support from Gazelle Consulting, providing HIPAA compliance and IT security services to businesses throughout Portland and across the West Coast, including HIPAA consulting, software, and risk uh, assessments and trainings. More information online at gazelleconsulting.org. And now, Flashpoints. (laughs) 